Before we get uh, to Genesis chapter 3 this morning, let me give you one more prayer request. We always have prayer requests at our church, don't we? Why don't you be in prayer for our sister Pam Jones this week? She has surgery, kidney surgery on Tuesday. And so be in prayer for her, uh, that God would direct the hands of, uh, of the surgeons um, that, are, that are working with her. And let's pray that God's will is done. Someone said the difference between major surgery and minor surgery is it's minor surgery when you're having it, it's major surgery when I'm having it. Um, and so let's pretend that you're having it and make it a major matter of prayer. Would you do that? Genesis chapter number 3. When we are listing dates, and I know there's a, there's a uh, movement to change, uh, to change B.C. to B.C.E. They've been doing that for a couple of decades now because they don't like the fact that B.C. stands before Christ. But when we, when we refer to in time to that uh, period before the birth of Christ, we'll say 4 B.C. or 37 B.C. or 1000 B.C. And we indicate that as being before Christ. And for the next couple of Sundays, uh, we're going to look, I I guess you could, uh, it's not really a series, but the topic would be Jesus B.C., Jesus before Christ. Because although uh, we meet Jesus as a man in Bethlehem, the fact is that Jesus existed long before he came to this planet. You know that. And the Bible is talking about Jesus Christ and referencing him very early. How is it true that Jesus existed before his birth? Well, it's true because he is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is, you know this, Jesus is the son of God. He came into being as a man when he was, when he was conceived in Mary's womb. But he has always existed. He has existed as long as the Father and the Spirit has. He is pre-existent is what we say theologically. Jesus said in John 8, uh, John 8, 58, and it got him in trouble. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And it's a, it's a very interestingly phrased statement. But what he was doing was declaring his eternal existence as God. Jesus is God. Don't let the world and don't let liberal theologians denigrate his good name, making him a good man or a good teacher or a wonderful rabbi. Jesus preexisted as God. Because of that, you're going to encounter Christ or references to him all throughout the Old Testament. Not just New Testament, but you'll find him also in the Old Testament. Sometimes in the Old Testament, he's referred to as the angel of the Lord. Not always. Now, there's sometimes the Bible will say an angel of the Lord. That's not talking about Jesus. But when you come to Joshua chapter 5, and and Joshua's looking, he's surveying the city of Jericho and wondering what's going on. It says the angel of the Lord appeared to him. That was was a, a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua met Jesus before he was born. Jesus is God. So we're going to examine this idea of Christ BC or Jesus before Christ uh, in the next couple of sermons, maybe two or three weeks here. I'd like us to start in the first place that Jesus is alluded to in the Bible, and that is Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. Genesis 3 15. 
We're going to confine our look today in just this, this one verse. This verse is the first promise given from God after an Adam, Eve, Adam and Eve fell about a, a promised deliverer. Theologians call this the proto-evangelium or the first gospel. It's the first allusion to a redemption in the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 3. This, this verse, Genesis 3.15, is a primary verse. One of the rules in hermeneutics, in constructing, in constructing uh, Bible interpretation, one of the rules is the law of first mention. And what you have in Genesis 3.15 is you have the first mention of a deliverer. Not by name, but you got the first mention of deliverer. So I, I say that to say this, that everything in the Bible after Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 flows from that verse. That's a big statement. I'll say it again. Everything in the Bible after Genesis 3.15 flows from the words of that verse. There was a preacher by the name of Charles Simeon who died in 1836. He said he called Genesis 3.15 the sum and summary of the whole Bible. Well, that's a big statement. There's a lot of Bible after Genesis 3.15. He says it's all summarized in this one verse. You hear statements like that because Jesus is alluded to here as her seed. Would you notice Genesis 3.15 with me? Jesus is talking here, uh, or, or God rather is talking here about Jesus, but he's talking to the snake. He's talking to the serpent. We don't have to rehearse Adam, Eve, and the serpent. You know that whole story. He's talking to the serpent, and he says in verse number 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Mark those two words. It's the first allusion to Jesus Christ in the Bible, singularly. Now, earlier, uh, God said, let us make man in our image, and that included all of the Trinity. This is the first singular reference in the Scripture to the Lord Jesus Christ, her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's the, that's the introduction to Jesus Christ in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. Here she's, he, he is called the seed of the woman. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look in Exodus chapter 12 at the Lamb of God. And then the week after that, born of a virgin in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. What I'm hoping and what I've been praying is that during the course of these weeks leading up to Christmas, that our hearts will be prepared for the celebration of that day in the right way, but even more so that they increase, that these messages will increase our devotion to Jesus Christ. He is worth your complete surrender to him. He's worth it. From the very beginning of the scripture, God is pointing us. Genesis 3, I mean, how much earlier in the Bible can we get? God is pointing us to Jesus Christ. So let's pray, and we're going to talk today about the seed of the woman, our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for its clarity. And we're looking today to your Holy Spirit to guide us into this truth. And I know that these folks have read this verse before. Would you help us to grasp the depth of this verse and the importance that it plays in us coming to Christ as Savior? 
Lord, we're so thankful you sent your son. We could have never saved ourselves. And to see here that from the beginning of time, you have been planning for Jesus to come and to be born and to be killed for us. He died for us. And Lord, we're thankful for it. Bless our time together today. It's short, so help us to profit from it. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's, let's look at this in three, three different areas, this one verse. Like I said, we're going to stay in this verse all day. Here's the first thing that's important. Let's start here. Understand the context. Understand the context. Every verse you read in the Bible should be considered in its context. If you take it out of its context, you end up with, well, some of the crazy religions that we have today. You can take a verse of Scripture and make it say just about anything you want to, but let's understand the context in which this was written uh, because of its importance. It is the first gospel. It's the proto-evangelium. So let's understand where, it, where it's coming from. Let's start with when this took place. Well, you know that already. We, we said, here we are in the Garden of Eden. You, you know that, but let's put, it into a, let's put it into a proper context as to when this took place. It took place near the very beginning of human history. This is not a new thing. This is not a, this is not a plan that God came up with. It took place at the very beginning of human history. Adam and Eve had entered into sin. They ate the forbidden fruit. Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam, wide open, took that and went right into it. And when they ate that forbidden fruit, was it an apple? Was it a grape? Was it a grapefruit? We know it wasn't a grapefruit because there were no grapefruit back then because it was a perfect world and there would not have been grapefruit and that bitterness there. So we know it wasn't a grapefruit. What was that fruit? I don't know. Jesus just said he took the fruit. And when they did, paradise ended and creation was completely ruined just by taking a bite of a fruit. Creation was ruined. It's interesting that their first impulse, what was their first impulse after they, after they, they hid from God? And when they finally come face to face to God, they start making excuse from their sin. Does that sound like you or me? They start making excuse. I, Dr. Manley quotes Adrian Rogers all the time, and every time, I, every time I hear that, it's hilarious, but it makes perfect sense. Dr. Rogers said Adam blamed, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed uh, the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> and so when we come to this sin, you have a perfect world. And I, I can't describe to you accurately what that perfect world looked like because I've never lived in one. Scientists will tell you that it was, the same, it was the same temperature over the entire planet, that the world was perfect in every way, that the oxygen content was higher and that's why men lived longer and they could run because of that, because of their, uh, the perfect uh, oxygen content that they lived in. They'll tell you that they could run for miles and miles and not be impacted. It was an incredible thought. It's an incredible thought to know what it's like to live in a perfect world. But they did until they didn't. The sky, one writer said, the sky was less blue, paradise became less beautiful, and the world's peace was obliterated. All of a sudden, lions are killing, are killing impalas. The world was just, death, death had come into the world. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Paradise lost. Creation 
ruined. And the only happy creature on the planet at this point was the serpent. He was happy because he was delighted in how his plan to ruin God's creation was nicely falling into place. God only had two human beings created in his image on the entire planet and both of them had fallen into sin. He showed the universe that God's great experiment was flawed, that no race of beings could ever be trusted to obey God. Left to themselves, they will disobey. I think the serpent was the only one happy that day. That's when this took place, near the very beginning of human history. And then who was involved? Who was involved? God surveys this moral wreckage and he begins passing sentence. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he didn't start with Eve. He started with the serpent. When he's passing out his condemnation, he, he starts with the serpent, then the woman, then the man. So in our verse here, God is speaking directly to the serpent. He says, first, you're cursed above every animal. And in my book, he is. I hate snakes. I do. I, and I know some of you think, well, you shouldn't kill black snakes because they'll kill poisonous snakes. I kill them all. So I don't need the black snake to do that for me. I don't like snakes. I think I told you about uh, Daniel and I were doing some things up here in our little barn uh, about a year or so ago. And um, he's as afraid of snakes as I am. He's not here today. By the way, we ought to be praying for Daniel. He's preaching right now. Uh, he's, he's candidating at Delco, in Delco, North Carolina today. Um, pray for that church. We're up here in the barn. We're moving some chairs. We're trying to get to this tent that's all folded up, and there's a bunch of metal folding chairs stacked on top of it. And I told Daniel, I said, I'm a, he didn't want to get involved in it. There's snakes. I didn't want to be involved in it, but I said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, take these, we're going to take these chairs off this thing, and then we'll get it off. I said, your job is to watch for snakes. That's it. All you got to do is watch for snakes. I'm going to hand you these chairs, stack them over there. You watch for snakes. I start unstacking. There's about, I don't know, 10 or 12 of those folding chairs stacked on there. And I, I was taking them off there. I got down to the last one or two chairs, and I turned around to grab those chairs. And there's a six-foot black snake coiled up sitting right there. I almost turned around and grabbed that thing and put my hands on it. And he's right there in my face. I looked at Daniel. I said, Daniel, all you had to do was look and see. I said, I told you to watch for snakes. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I hate snakes. I hate them. They're cursed above every creature, the Bible says, and I am in full agreement with God's curse on that snake. And then he says, you're going to crawl on your belly forever. That's why he says you're going to eat dust forever. A serpent's head is never very far away from just, if, if the ground's all dusty and nasty, he's going to eat it. Every snake in this world moves like it does because God cursed that entire species, and said, you'll crawl on your belly forever. God's speaking to this serpent. The bad news for the serpent is that there was no good news for him at all. And I, I know the gospel's mentioned here because it says, I will put enmity between uh, thy seed and her seed. And I know we're introduced here to Jesus Christ, not by name, but we're introduced to him. But there's no good news there for the, the serpent. The gospel is only going to further curse him. 
I think in some ways you were looking at the devil's finest moment in Genesis chapter 3. I think this was his greatest accomplishment. Some people would say, well, I don't know about that. I think the cross was. No, the cross was God's greatest accomplishment. That was not Satan's. This was, this was the devil's work. I think Genesis 3 is his finest moment. And for a short while, I think he is enjoying what he thinks is a final victory. He has ruined creation. Remember, don't attribute to Satan omniscience. He does not know all there is to know. I do not believe that he knew at this point. I don't know if he knew about the Lord Jesus Christ. But God tells him, I'm going to put enmity between thy seed and her seed. That's who's involved in in Genesis 3.15. God and the serpent. So that's the context. Get this, at the very beginning of human history, God is setting up, or I shouldn't say he's setting up, he's revealing his plan of salvation this enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of, of the woman. So that's understanding the context. Second, let's see what this verse predicts. This verse is a prophetical verse, uh, one of the first in the Bible. So what is it predicting? What does Genesis 3.15 predict? We're going to summarize its prophecy in three short phrases. The first one is endless conflict. There's one of the key words in this verse is that word enmity. It means hostility or animosity. It means to be in a feud with. And God says, I'm going to take responsibility for causing that. He said, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. There's going to be an endless conflict. When, when he uses that word seed, you know what he, he's talking about the future generations that are coming after these two adult uh, people that are here now. Remember, an amazing thing, there's only two people on the planet, Adam and Eve, but he's, he's talking about their seed, the generations of the yet unborn that are coming. Her seed, men and women that would be of faith, and they'd be in every generation who would believe and they would follow the true God. People like Abel, her son, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ruth, David. Go on down the line. Eventually, that culminates in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, her seed. And then there's thy seed. It's important to note this. Satan has his generations too. Satan has those who have been following ever since, uh, ever since Cain killed his brother Abel. You have the wicked generations of the pharaohs in, uh, that, that were in Egypt and they were opposing everything that Moses did. Those wicked people go back before that. The wicked people that, that Noah lived among. That God compared our day to Noah's day. Remember he said as it was in the days of Noah. You have the Canaanites that fought Joshua. Pagans like Goliath that opposed David. All of those that murdered and imprisoned the prophets, those are the ungodly line of Satan. They're the seed of Satan. Continue that into the day of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees who opposed him, Herod killing babies, Judas betraying him, those who arrested and mocked and eventually crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, the bloodthirsty crowd saying, crucify him, give us Barabbas, but crucify Jesus, the seed of Satan. Well, that's, that's you and me when we're first born into this world. 
We're not born as children of God. We're made the creation of God, but we have to be born into his family. Satan has his seed. If I were just humanly speaking today, and don't, don't get mad at me, and theologians, don't, don't correct me after church. I'm just humanly speaking today. Who's responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus? The ungodly line of Satan. Now, you and I know that God himself designed the crucifixion before the foundation of the world began. But if I didn't know anything about the Bible, and I didn't know anything about God, and all I did was read secular history, I would say Jesus was put to death by men who ultimately they're going to be revealed as the line of the seed of Satan. Satan has his seed. The woman would have her seed. And God said, I'm going to put enmity, endless conflict between the righteous and the unrighteous. I, I don't know if you've read Francis Schaeffer or not. He's a great uh, apologist and he, he's a wonderful thinker. And he's a guy I have to go back sometimes and reread the paragraph so I can make sure I grasp what he's, say, what he's saying. Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer talks about two humanities that arose after Genesis 3.15. There's two humanities. Here's how he described it. From this time on in the flow of history, there are two humanities. The one humanity says there is no God. Or it makes God in its own imagination. Or it tries to come to God in its own way. The other humanity comes to the true God in God's way There is no neutral ground. Those two humanities will always be at odds. Why is that? Because in Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It's going to be an endless conflict. Jesus further talks about that in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. He said this, if the world hates you, Another way to read that is, since the world hates you. But if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. What is he talking about? He's talking about those two humanities. He's talking about that enmity that God said was going to result. It's an endless conflict. There's another thing that comes about in this prophecy is temporary defeat. That's the second thing. Not only endless conflict, but temporary defeat. God says, God himself says, thou shalt bruise his heel. Have you ever bruised your heel or injured your heel? Had a bone spur on your heel? That's troubling, isn't it? That's uncomfortable. You've got to do different things. You've got to wear different shoes. You've got to wear something in your shoes. Um, You might have to have surgery. But what happens when you've got a problem with your heel? You take some Tylenol to get rid of the pain or you do have surgery. But here's what doesn't happen. It doesn't kill you. You don't die from it. So, so God uses this bruising of the heel here as a pointed reference as to what Satan will do to the woman's seed. You're going to bruise his heel, but you're not going to kill him. That wasn't Satan's word. When Christ died on the cross, his feet were both pierced. You know that. That's the bruising of his heel. And again, Satan gets a a temporary victory. It must have looked like Jesus was defeated, but he's not. 
Spurgeon talking about that bruising of the heel. There's another one I like to read. You just have to read him slow. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Look at your master and king upon the cross, all disdained with blood and dust. There was his heel most cruelly bruised. When they take down that precious body and wrap it in fair white linen and in spices and lay it in Joseph's tomb, they weep as they handle the casket in which deity had dwelt. For there again Satan had bruised his heel. The devil had let loose Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas and the Jews and the Romans. But that is all. It is only his heel not his head that is bruised, for lo, the champion rises again. Temporary victory, or temporary rather defeat here. Uh, Satan delivered his best shot at Jesus when he was on Calvary, and he, he thought he was throwing the knockout punch, not realizing all along that God had designed Calvary ultimately for Satan's final and eternal defeat. It was a temporary defeat here. All he did was bruise the heel of the woman's seed. So you have endless conflict that's that's in this verse. It's the enmity. You have temporary defeat, the bruising of the heel, but you have eventual victory. Because it also says that her seed shall bruise thy head. Consider those two phrases, the bruising of the heel... Or the bruising of the head, which would you rather suffer? I'll take the heel every time. Jesus' death on the cross was a crushing defeat for, for Satan. Phillips Brooks, he wrote some of the hymns that we sing in our hymnal. Phillips Brooks said that Jesus won the battle even while he was dying. And this, this is how he put it. Jesus was wounded sorely, a life all torn and bleeding. He dragged out to the end, but when the end came, it was victorious. Look at him, just like Spurgeon said. Look at him on the cross. Sin has taken the Savior and fastened him there. It has driven the nails and crowded down the crown of thorns upon the forehead. It has seemed to have its own way with him, and all the while, with those hands closing in agony over the nails, he is crushing the life out of sin. Sin is tormenting him, but he is vanquishing sin. It's it's eventual victory. Uh, If that's true, and it is, if it's true that Satan has been crushed, that his head has been bruised, if that's true, why does Satan seem to be doing so well today? Does he not seem to have a pretty good business going in this world that you and I live in? But his, his head's been bruised. Literally, his head's been crushed. Why does he have so much power? One guy wrote it like this. I thought this made good sense. The answer to that question is, how can a defeated, crushed enemy have so much power in this world? The answer to that question is this. Satan was judged and sentenced at Calvary. For now, he's free to roam the earth while awaiting execution. That's a pretty good statement. It's coming. It's just a matter of time. Eventually, there's going to be this victory. So first, understand the context. This happened at the very beginning of time. 
Second, what this verse predicts is vital to you and I. Although Satan may appear to be victorious today and having his own, having his own way, know this, he has been sentenced to death and he's awaiting execution. That's coming. The last thing I'll share with you this morning and then we'll be done is learn how this applies to us. What does all that mean? There's a, there's a bit of theology there, isn't there? There's a bit of eschatology there in prophecy. But what does this have to do with you and me today on December 3rd, 2023, going to church in the United States of America? How does this apply to us? Three lessons I'd like you to take from this today. The first is this, that the Christian life will always be a struggle. It'll always be a struggle. It's just part of this earth. God said, I'm going to put enmity between thy seed and her seed. You are part of her seed. You've been made one with Christ. And that that endless conflict is here for us. The Christian life is always going to be a struggle. Think of the <coughs> excuse me, think of the, the pictures that Paul used to describe the Christian life. Would you think about that just for a minute? He used the long distance runner. He used a boxer. He used a wrestler. And he used a soldier. Those four pictures ought to tell you this Christian life is going to be a struggle. If you're going to be successful at any of those things, wrestling, running, boxing, soldiering, if you're going to be successful at any of those things, it's going to take an engagement of your heart, soul, mind, and body. It's going to be a struggle for each of us. And until you and I die, or until Jesus Christ raptures us from this planet, we're going to struggle. We'll struggle with temptation. We will struggle with all of those things that beset us in this world. And sometimes we'll lose a battle here and there. Ultimately, we're going to win. Eventually, victorious. Ultimately, we'll be be victorious. But sometimes we're going to lose a battle here and there. It's a struggle. Don't be discouraged. This life is hard. It's supposed to be hard. Don't be surprised by that. Jesus, remember what Jesus said in John? Know this, if they hate you, they hated me first. Later, we're told to expect tribulation. Paul, Paul's greatest descriptions of the Christian life revolve around that picture of us being soldiers in the Lord's army. Battle, I, I've never been in battle. Some of you are battle, you're, you're, you're war veterans. It's not meant to be easy. It's dangerous. It requires us to be vigilant. So the first lesson to take away from this is that the Christian life is always going to be a struggle. Don't think that you're a weak Christian because you struggle. That's what Christians do in a non-Christian world. Second lesson, our victories will not come without wounds. Our victories won't come without wounds. If Jesus suffered in doing the will of God, and he did, so will you and so will I. If Jesus did, we will. At the cross, Satan strikes this blow and he wounded Christ. He wounded his body. But, but even after the resurrection, he has these, these scars. Our victories will not come without wounds. There will be struggles and there will be wounds. But we're told not to despair. Paul celebrated, we won't turn there, but if you just write down Philippians 3.10, Paul celebrated 
And he anticipated the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. That's not something I celebrate. That's not something I I sit around and look forward to. The Apostle Paul considered it an honor to fellowship with Jesus Christ in suffering. Our victories will not come without wounds. Paul would go on later to say in the book of Galatians, he would say this, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, the scars from his persecutions and the attempts on his life. And he looked at them as honorable. You're going to be wounded in this life, Christian. Don't let that, don't let that knock you off, off, uh, off course. Expect it. This life will be, the, the Christian life will be full of struggles. Our victories will not come without wounds. And the final thing is this. Getting back to Genesis 3.15. God's plan of salvation is wrapped up in a person. God's plan of salvation is wrapped up in a person. This is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. Some might miss it because Jesus' name isn't there. We don't see Jesus or Christ or Savior or Messiah. The angels aren't there uh, shouting out like they were shouting in Luke. Unto you is born this day a Savior which is Christ Lord. You might miss it, but he's there. He's the seed of the woman. He's one day going to come. He's going to come in unlikely and impossible fashion. He's going to come born to a poor couple, and he's going to come by way of virgin birth. But he's going to come. The plan of salvation that God designed for us is wrapped up in a person. Picture this whole thing like a funnel, would you? Genesis 3.15 is the top of that broad funnel. And it's going to just continually narrow down. So you have this funnel when the promise was given. Not any details other than it's her seed, which that's an interesting statement. He's the only one ever born of a woman's seed. It's not the only place that it's mentioned. It's going to be mentioned later in the New Testament. But you have this this broad prophecy that there is one coming, the seed of the woman. So he's going to be a man... But after the flood came, boy, all of a sudden you're down, to, you're down to three lines, aren't you? You have this broad human race, then the flood comes, and all that's left is Noah and his three sons and their wives. So that it shrinks quite a bit, and now we're down to three sons. And we know that that further is shrunk down to Shem. We know that he's going to be a descendant of Noah's son, Shem. And then we're introduced to Abraham the father of the Jewish nation. And then we meet his great-grandson, Judah, to whom the Bible said the lion of the tribe of Judah would come. And then we meet this guy named David, still in the tribe of Judah, but all of a sudden we're talking about David's throne, even as it relates to the promised person back in Genesis chapter 3. And about a thousand years later, A virgin conceives and gives birth to a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And all of a sudden, that funnel has come right down to one person. After hundreds and hundreds of prophecies, 
all of them, starting with Genesis 3.15, all of them are realized in the person of Christ. And Galatians 4.4 takes us right back to Genesis 3.15, where it says that Jesus came made of a woman. The seed of the woman fulfilling this promise, guaranteeing that he was free from sin's contamination. That's why he was virgin born. When God wanted to crush Satan, that one who ruined creation, he started in a stable in Bethlehem. John Wesley is the one who wrote the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. A lot of the modern hymnals, um, they, they don't include one of the verses that they absolutely should have left in there because it has so much theology in it. And that that verse in Hark the Herald Angels Sing says this, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn capital K king. The seed of the woman. I want you to consider this, that not long after man and woman were on the planet, God was already letting them know there was a plan in place to redeem their souls. From the very beginning, God knew about this. There was a man by the name of Paul E. Little. He worked for about 20, he and his wife both worked for about 25 years with the, Christ, or the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, he taught at Trinity Evangel, uh, Evangelical uh, Seminary. And he had this, he had this, pro, the, this uh, process that he went through when he was talking to someone about salvation. Could I conclude today by by sharing with you his three questions when he was talking to someone about being saved? Because God's plan of salvation is wrapped up in the person that we know is Jesus Christ. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. But when he was talking to lost people, he had three questions that he would would approach them with. And here are his his questions. First, he would ask them this. Have you accepted Christ as your Savior or are you still on the way? Don't you like the way he put that? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior or are you still on the way? Second, if you're still on the way, where are you in your spiritual journey at this moment? That's a good question. On your spiritual journey, are you running away from God or are you running toward him? Are you battling his call for salvation or are you being drawn to him and surrender toward it? If you're still on the way, where are you in your spiritual journey? And then his third question was this. Are you ready to receive Christ as Savior and Lord now? There's no greater decision that you can make. I want you to see how far God went. As soon, listen, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned and that separation was drawn in them, As soon as it was evident that they were out of fellowship with God, 
God let them know there was a plan already in effect for that. There was a plan to save them. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name. We may not get to the Christmas story itself till Matthew 1 or Luke 2, but you have this, this introduction to Jesus thousands and thousands of years before that. He was just simply called her seed. But it happened right after man and woman fell. The plan, was, the plan was already in place. I love the way John Phillips put it. John Phillips one of my favorite authors. John Phillips said when God acted in creation, he already knew he would have to act in redemption. As he was forming man the dust out of dust of the ground, he already had Calvary planned out to the, the, the most minute detail. God always wanted his creation to be his. And when they messed that up, he went after him. God went looking for Adam and Eve in the garden. That's just symbolic of how he comes and he seeks after you and me. It's not us seeking for God. He's the seeker. They are all, the prophet said in Isaiah, they're all gone out of the way. There's none that seeketh after righteousness. God is seeking after us. He knew all of redemption, or he knew rather all redemption would cost, and it would cost his son. But he made Adam and Eve anyway. What a tremendous thought. Let me share with you one more Christmas song. Can I do that? What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? For my soul. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. May I tell you, he created Adam and Eve knowing his son would be crucified. And he was crucified for you and, and for me. So what do you do? What do you do with this great love that has come to you? Christmas is about the love of God. Calvary is about the judgment of God. God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What are you going to do with that love? If you're lost here this morning and you, you've never been saved, let me tell you, don't spurn it. Don't spurn the love of God. Don't reject the love of God. And I'm saying that to you in, in, in a begging tone because of this. God will not always strive with you. He will not always convict you to be saved. There may come a point where God no longer is drawing you to himself. And if he's not, you can't be saved. So if you've never been saved, if you've never accepted Christ, and you know that this morning, I would invite you in just a moment when we stand, I'd invite you to come and be saved. Because you never know when God's going to not invite you to be saved again. And then for the Christian, this wondrous love that has been given to us, how can we live our lives in anything less than to surrender to him? And when I say surrender, I'm not talking about conditional surrender. 
I'm talking about what was demanded of the Japanese at the end of World War II. After the first atomic bomb was dropped, there was an offer made of conditional surrender. That's not going to fly. So the second bomb was dropped. And Japan put up their hands and they said, basically, we'll do whatever we need to do for you to stop. You know what God wants from you and me, Christian? He wants unconditional surrender of our life. He wants control. It's not because he's a control freak. It's because he can do more with your life than you can imagine doing on your own. He's a good God. He's an omnipotent God. He's a loving God. He sent his son. He paid for your salvation. And it's a hard life we're going to live. We're going to have this endless conflict. But eventually there's going to be victory. This is the promise in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he told us that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We don't have to wait till Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 2 to meet Jesus. We find him all through the all through the, the Old Testament. And he starts in the third chapter of the book telling you that there's coming one who is going to ultimately defeat Satan. And through that, he's going to provide salvation for you and me. And he did. Jesus Christ. Would you stand please with your heads bowed? Father, I thank you for this this day. Thank you for telling us from the very beginning that it was always your plan to rescue us from our sin. And we're thankful, Jesus, that you came willingly to die on the cross, that God's will in your life was more important to you than the cup passing. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for paying for our sin. I pray for those that might be here today not saved. Would you save their souls this morning? They don't know when their life's going to go. You said our lives are like a vapor. No matter how long we live, we're just here for a little time, then we vanish away. We ought not to boast about tomorrow because we don't know what a day is going to bring forth. So if someone is here today within the sound of my voice, either in the room or online, Lord, if they're not saved, draw them to yourself today. May they realize today is the day of salvation. And I pray for the Christian who struggles with surrender. And Lord, all of us every day, Ought to be lying our, we ought to be laying our lives down before you and saying, God, whatever you want to do with me and through me and in me today, you can do it. May we live our lives surrendered to you. Help those that might be struggling with that. Lord, your children, but maybe a little wayward, draw them back to yourself today. Whatever you choose to do, we pray you do it this morning. And do it for your honor and for your glory, we pray in your name. Amen. Would you hold your heads bowed for just a moment? I'm going to ask you.